When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And sometimes I get to step back behind the microphone, and I always like to do this, especially when I can talk to a fellow podcasting entrepreneur, if I can use that word. Today, we're talking to Sean Guillory, who is the host of the SRB podcast, a podcast that focuses on Russian affairs. I highly recommend it. Um, We'll put a link in the show notes so you can go and subscribe. Uh, Sean has done a whole bunch of things, uh, the most impressive of which is he has actually founded and runs a successful academic podcast. That's a hard thing to do. Let me tell you. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Marshall. I'm impressed by your ability to rattle off that introduction like that. I could never do this kind of stuff. I haven't haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, rattling is one of my skills. You can't really put that on your CV, but I can rattle. (laughs) Yeah. So maybe you could begin just by, and this is before the question in which I ask you about your podcast. Sure. Tell us about you. About me. Sean. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, um, let's see. Uh, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, I have a PhD in Russian history from UCLA. Um, and, you know, Marshall, I don't need to enter, I don't need to regale you with the, the pitfalls of academic life, but uh, not, you know, not getting a job uh, in a tenure track job, which actually now I'm I'm blessed to not have (laughs) one. (laughs) I have to say, you know, at the time it was horrible, but now in retrospect, it's like the best thing that ever happened to me. But at any rate, um, so yeah, so, and, and I started a blog in 2005 actually called Sean's Russia blog. As you can tell, I didn't put much time in the naming because I didn't think it would go anywhere. But after a couple of years of just kind of of writing about, you know, Russian affairs, uh, I started to have an audience. Um, so the blog kept going and going and going. And then once I kind of crash landed with academia, I decided to start my own podcast, um, called the SRB podcast in 2015. Um, so nowadays, most of my time is dealing exclusively with audio. I'm actually not so interested in writing, certainly not academic writing, but I'm been more and more fascinated and involved in how to translate you know, a lot of the ideas that the New Books Network propagates in terms of scholarship, how to translate those academic ideas into good stories. 
um, and and get try to get even some colleagues, some scholars to think about how to approach their material in a different way and, and promote audio as a as a, a different medium of intellectual engagement. So this is this is my focus now. I'm I'm moving into more narrative audio. Um, I'm really interested in this. As you mentioned, I have this documentary, Teddy Goes to USSR, which comes out May 30th. And then I'm working on, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm working on a n- new documentary after that, that I've been actually researching for the last couple of years uh, on a guy named Levitt Fort Whiteman, who is the only African-American we know of who is a victim of Stalin's terror. Hmm. So I'm doing a multi-part documentary based on archival research from Russia, Kazakhstan, the United States of African-Americans, the Soviet Union and communism in the 20s and 30s told through his life. Wow, that sounds um, yeah. interesting. I've not heard of this film. Yeah, so um, so yeah, it's that that's actually the big the thing I've been wanting to do, but the Teddy Rowe thing, which I can talk about later, the Teddy Rowe project kind of fell in my lap and then I got money for it. So then I was, I had to go through with it. You know how that is. Right. Um, but, you know, but all the while I've been doing research on for the second project, which is kind of my, more of my labor of love, but. Yeah, yeah, so that's a bit about me, unless you have any other specific questions. Well, I wanted to talk <laughs> about uh, the SRB podcast. Yeah. Um, what first moved you to decide to do a podcast? I mean, this is for an academic, as I right. think most people would do. This is a very unusual thing to do. There are academic podcasts, and there are very good ones. You can find some of them on the New Books Network if you go to Academic Partners. But it's a, it was an unusual choice. How, why did you decide to do this? Well, I mean, to be completely honest, Marshall, a lot of it has to do with you. Oh, really? How's that? Well, for some, <laughs> I don't know if you remember, but I guess it was a turning point in my life. But uh, way back, I think it was in 2010. Yes, you, I remember. You yeah. reached out to me to yeah. join the New Books Network for its Eurasia channel, and I yeah. started doing started doing it then. Actually, yeah, I remember. And then I kind of slinked away and got involved in other things, and then. I've always had an in, like an interest in radio, I should say. Um, in the 1990s, I became fascinated with this whole like trying to start your own radio station, like pirate radio type stuff. And then mm-hmm. I did a, a few things at the um, Pacifica station in Los Angeles at the time on KPFK. So I've always had that interest. Um, but it was really you who provided the opportunity for me to start doing this and then learning from it because – you know, I didn't know anything in terms of the technical side, issues of production, even interviewing, these kinds of things. You know, everything I've done for the SRB podcast and the documentaries I'm working on is basically I've learned on my own or taken, you know, classes yeah. or something like this. Um, so a lot of it has to do with you. And then when I, when I, you know, needed to find some kind of life after academia um, and not knowing what I want to do when I grow up, I decided, well, I have this, you know, website that's been around this blog forever. So why don't I just start my own podcast? Yeah, um, when you find that out was what it. you want to do with your life, could you please tell me to write <laughs> some guidance there? Well, I, I just turned 60 and I, people ask me what I do and I always say, I'll tell you when I figure it out. Right. Well, you know, hey, you know, I, the, the problem is actually for me, not not figuring out what I want to do with my life, but actually sticking with something and not moving on to the next thing I want yeah, to do with my life. A, that is a problem. Yeah, that is um, a problem. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, I should say also by um, way of a small digression, you're not the only host on the NBN who has uh, gone on to start a successful podcast. And I'm always very happy when this happens. You know, some people say, oh, Marshall, I'm going to leave because I'm going to start my own podcast about cricket to Mm -hmm. give the most recent example. And I'm like, great, what can I do to help? 
Yeah. <laughs> no, it's very generous of you. I mean, yeah. it's, it is. And give people the, the space to develop if they're interested, right? Well, to I, can say, I can say this in the way of uh, not a humble brag, just a brag. Um, I believe I have taught more people to podcast than any person alive. Hmm. <laughs> hundreds well, and hundreds of people have learned how to podcast as hosts on the NBN. Well, I have to say, as somebody like myself who's actually really interested in the in the podcasting community, such that it is like I've I've taken classes from people who've worked at NPR forever. I've gone to like a week long documentary course at at Duke University. Um, you know, I think people like yourself actually have a have a lot to give to even that community, the podcasting community in general, in terms of like your experience. I, well, I I'm get, always get, very happy to talk about it if anybody yeah. wants to have me talk about it. And I do sometimes, uh, you know, go through my experiences, the which kind of leads me to my next question. In setting up the SRB podcast, what sort of challenges did you face? Um, yeah, go ahead. I think the I think the first challenge actually was just on the technical side um, to know how to record a good interview, how to edit a good interview. At, at first, you know, one of the, the turning points in starting was I did a survey of listeners um, way back several years ago. And one of the main complaints was the sound quality. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I started to put a lot of investment into getting good sound quality. Well, so let me tell getting... you what, you sound great. <laughs> well, I better, with this microphone, I better sound great. Um, but, but it was also about not just, not just, you know, learning like what's the good equipment, how to set it up, where to record, where not to record. It was also just, you know, what do you need to be aware of in terms of doing a good interview or recording a good interview in terms of like sound, like environmental sound or the dog yeah. barking. And then also on the editing side, I, I started, like most people, editing audio on Audacity. And it was only when I, you know, decided to shell out some money and, you know, get like a Adobe Audition. That's what I use now. Yeah. And so that also makes the world a whole different world. It's a whole different world when you're editing audio with that as yeah. opposed to some other program. And I mean, I'm not going to get into the those technical details, but that was the first challenge. The second challenge, and this, I think this was the, something I didn't realize for a while, you know, coming from an academic background, you, what you're interested in isn't necessarily what listeners are going to be interested in. And I was shooting for an audience of, I mean, the way I imagine my audience is someone who isn't necessarily connected professionally to Russia, Eurasia, whatever, or to academia, um, but is interested so they may not be like, you know, know the ins and outs of Russian history or even care, but they're interested in the, in the region or they're interested in the country for whatever reason. And uh, when I've done surveys about like, you know, what's my audience, I found that about over half are just these kinds of people who don't have professional, who aren't the usual suspects as I call them. So that's the, that was the other challenging thing is to how to conduct an interview that wasn't like, you know, I was in a grad seminar dissecting the historiography of X, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, to ask more general questions, to even ask questions that I already knew answers to, but kind of playing that character of not knowing. It's funny you mentioned that because when I do interviews, especially if it's on a subject that I know a lot about because I just read a book about it, the book in question, sometimes I will say to the uh, interviewee, I'm going to ask questions that make it sound 
like I don't know anything about your yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> don't think I don't, though, but I, it will sound like I don't because I'm standing in for the person that has no idea. Yeah. And this is one of the main lessons in why I try to encourage audio as a, as a medium in general to get academics to think about is you, you are forced, if you want to do it well, you're forced to consider audience, yeah. right? And, and, and you also have to decenter yourself. I mean, doing an interview, it's, it's not about me as the interviewer. It's about the interviewee. So you have to also, you know, you, you can't approach the interview, at least in my opinion, as a, as a platform for yourself, right? You have to, to some extent, erase yourself. Or like I said, you could play a character of sorts, which is kind of yeah. a combination of what I do. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you a hundred percent. In fact, if you get the, uh, we have, you know, onboarding materials for hosts on the NBN. And one, one of the, one, one of the bits of advice that I give people is just to get out of the way. Yeah. Because really, in, at least on, on the NBN, what, what people want is to hear from the author, yes. the researcher, the specialist and, and not the host. Um, yeah. and so we, we go to, pretty great pains to make sure that on our interviews, the author does n over 90% of the talking. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. the way it should be because the purpose of an NBN interview is to allow the author to talk about what they found in their research, full stop, no explanation needed. That's it. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and so, you know, I really try to emphasize this. They're not platforms for opinionating and bloviating and all the other <laughs> stuff that people do. And, and, and and I think the listeners appreciate that. We get right to it. It's about the mm -hmm. book, um, right? Yeah, it's about the book. So, um, I, I the 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 technical hurdles though have got. I mean, they've gotten lower. Oh, I think yeah. you can agree yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah. It's gotten so much better. As I was mm -hmm. saying in the pre-interview when we were chatting beforehand, when I started 15 years ago, I used to use Skype out to call people on cell phones. Yeah. <laughs> now. Uh, it's just much, much better. It's much easier. Now to nobody even post. uses Skype. <laughs> yeah, so. right. Skype, exactly. It's funny because sometimes, sometimes I will, sometimes just to mess with people, I will say, I'm going to call you on Skype. And they're like, what's Skype? <laughs> exactly. It's a good way to date yourself. That's for sure. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's funny. It really is. In my email, in my, if you receive an email from me, it will have a Skype address. I wonder if people will like, I just left it in there. I don't know why. <laughs> but like, what is that? Skype. Right. Um, but yeah, now, I mean, in the, and especially in the age of Zoom, now everybody knows how to do something like we're doing, and that, that's yeah. been a great boon for us. Yeah, it has. There, the 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 learning curve of get for guests uh, to to manage this technology has gone down considerably because yeah, of COVID. It, it really has, and people aren't frightened of it anymore. No, and, no. and and you know they're. You know, good audio in, good audio out. I always tell people you you can make good audio better, but you can't make bad audio good. It's just that's not, true. There is no studio magic. It does not. And there's exist. another. There's another <laughs> thing about COVID that actually is interesting because because of COVID, it's actually brought the quality of professional podcasting and radio down. Really, you can hear Talk about that. Well, so for example, you know, most uh, NP like let's say take Fresh Air, you know, very famous. NPR, Terry Gross, yeah. Gross. Everybody knows Terry Gross. Well, all of those interviews are done remotely or they're done in studio. And when they're done remotely, a lot of times they're, somebody is at a local radio station or uh, Gundy, at yeah. a university, whatever studio. But now during COVID, you couldn't do that. You're so right about this. And so you, I, and I, you know, because of years of doing this, I can tell when I hear... <laughs> 
<laughs> I know just what you mean. Let me give you an example. Like when I hear one of these interviews now, I can tell that the person is using what I call a dangling mic. Yes. It, they uh, always have a little click. There's yeah. a little uh -huh. click that they produce yeah. when they move. I can always tell, oh, that person's wearing a dangling mic from an iPad pad or ipod yeah, yeah. Or whatever they are yeah <laughs> so it actually has brought the quality down because even professionals now they're are using zoom they're not able to use tape sinkers which is the right. 90 percent of you know basically hiring somebody to do sit with a microphone while yeah. you interview somebody over the internet or the phone or whatever so when you couldn't do that they had to adjust i mean some people i was i was listening to I think it was uh, New York Times' daily podcast. This is way in the beginning of the pandemic where the host was talking about recording in his closet. And I was like, wow, you're like, yeah. you know, a DIY <laughs> podcaster now. Yeah. Welcome to our world. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, that's right. But uh, yeah, so, you know, but the, the technical the technical hurdles are, are, you know, far less than they were when I started. Yeah. I mean, um, also in terms of hosting, though, I mean, when I started podcasting 15 years ago, I hosted my own files. I remember I had a Bluehost account. Oh, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and for 15 bucks a month or whatever it was, and I would serve my own files from the Bluehost account. And this involved a lot of a lot of stuff that I don't have to do anymore. And now there are yeah. pretty good podcast hosts out there, like we're on Megaphone, and there are a bunch of others that, that will do this for you at a pretty reasonable price. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, I mean, the resources, <clears throat> I mean, there's, there is a reason why there are 2 million podcasts out there. Yeah, that's right. And why yeah. you see so many services and, and why you now see our, you know, attempts at corporate capture with yeah. Spotify and everybody's yeah. trying to get into the, you know, the podcasting business. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a way that, way that corporate capture has been good for us. I'm not sure it's mm -hmm. been good for small independent podcasters because in a way, you know, the, the creation of companies like Megaphone, and there are others, um, Libsyn and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, Blueberry is another one. I admire the guy, Todd Cochran, who founded that. Um, they have found a way to monetize podcasts, which really sort of saved our bacon because yeah. uh, it was mm -hmm. very it was very hard to keep doing what we were doing. And our mission is public education, full stop. But right. even even a company whose mission is public education needs revenue to continue. And, and so we have kind of benefited from the entrepreneurial, uh, I guess, spirit that these people brought to, to podcasting. Mm -hmm. to, just, yeah, just they recognized early on for sure. Yeah. That we were, we were reaching valuable audiences and, you know, say what you will about advertising, good, bad, I don't know. Um, uh, it, it's, it's one mechanism that allows us to keep doing what we're doing. That is pursue the mission, which is public education. Right. I mean, if, right. if in my ideal world, there'd be no ads. Sure. I get that. But, we don't live in that world. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> and I, so in terms of like what the hurdles are now, I mean, it goes to directly what you're saying is, is okay, how do you get an audience? Yeah. How and do how you do you maintain audience? that audience? Well, you know, I, on one hand, I don't have an answer for you. Um, but what I do tell people who, especially if you're starting out a podcast, there's a couple of, of, you know, important things. The first one I tell them is consistency. Yeah. You know, if you decide, it doesn't matter how often you're going to put out a podcast whether it's every week or every month or whatever, you just need to stick with one schedule. Um, because, you know, people who like it the, will subscribe and follow it. And then they'll, if they really like it, then they'll start expecting 
you know, it to come out. And the worst thing could happen is that you go dead for silent for four weeks or whatever, your weekly podcast, and then somebody unsubscribes because they're like, you know, podcasts fold all the time. Um, So there's a lot of churn, a lot of churn in (laughs) podcasting. There's a lot of there's consistency is is a a big issue. Um, But at the same time, you know, like, for an audience like mine, who is interested in you know, Eurasia or Russia or whatever. I mean, I understand that it's a finite audience. I'm not going to have an audience of right. millions or even tens of thousands. Yep. Um, so, you know, and, and the thing with podcasting, it is a very niche thing, right? When you do a podcast, you want to be able to find your niche and cater to that. Yep. Um, and so I think that is one way to, to deal with an audience. And of course, you know, social media, word of mouth, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I'm personally actually surprised when people, I meet people who act, know. <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, I listen to you all the time. I'm like, yeah. what? Yeah. Um, That's great. So, you know, I, I've, I've been, I think I've been, you know, of course I'd love to be bigger, but at the same time, you know, as, as they used, as they said in nineties, more money, more problems. So yeah. I don't know well, if I want to be know, too you gotta big. You've got to manage expectations. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you're, you're doing the kind of things that we do in the academic space, you're, you're not going to have huge hits and nor do we even try to do that. Right. Because our mission, as I said, is really public education. And we try to cover as much as we possibly can. For mm-hmm. example, you know, we measure the success of the New Books Network by the number of episodes we publish. Uh-huh. Not the number of people who listen, hmm. not the amount of revenue that comes in, nothing else. Wow. It's just that. We try to publish as many episodes as we can because we're building a kind of library, a permanent repository right. of audio knowledge. And, and and you know, do, do we do things to optimize it, uh, you know, for, for, for revenue? No, <laughs> we actually don't. <laughs> we, we don't do that. No, we don't do anything like that. Um, we, we sacrifice everything just to get the word out about these these books. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, to go back to what you said about consistency, I have this phrase that I just tell everybody I talk to about building a podcast audience. And it is this. I should have t-shirts made up. You have to produce good content regularly over a long period of yes. time. That's yeah. it. That's Those three it. things. Good yeah. content regularly over a long period of time and people will find you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the hardest, the, I would have to say the hardest, hardest challenge for me presently is not getting burnt out because yeah. doing an interview show isn't a, a the create, it's not a great creative outlet mm. uh, because it's mostly about the guest, right? Yep. So one of my, the reason why I've moved more and more into narrative stuff is a, I find it more interesting. Like as a listener, I find it more interesting. Um, but as, as a creator, it allows me to craft a story. It allows me to, you know, do things like add music or write narrative or, you know, all of these other components to audio production that are, are far more fun. Um, at least I find far more fun than doing the straight interview show. Well, and in fairness to you and to all the other narrative podcast creators out there, they actually take a lot of skills. Oh, it takes a lot of time too. (laughs) An interview podcast is a very simple beast if you do Mm -hmm. it right. But an actual narrative podcast, that uh, is something that I would not take on lightly. (laughs) Really? (laughs) No, I, you know, again, it really does involve so many skills because, you know, you're like making a little documentary. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. And it's, that is hard. 
um, you know, with a, yeah, with a capital H. I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, let's talk a little bit. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. You have mm-hmm. ventured into the narrative space with Teddy goes to the USSR. Can you uh, first of well, who's Teddy? So Teddy Rowe is this guy who lives in Billings, Montana. He's eighty. Let's see, he was born in nineteen thirty-four. So. I'm bad at math, but he's old. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, <laughs> and he he spent his career actually working in Congress as a staffer for uh for Mike Mansfield, who was the Democratic yeah. majority leader in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, and then Lee Metcalf after him in in Mont- so both he's he's a died hard Montanan, uh, Teddy is, and uh, so the way why he's important because he's just this guy. Um, in 2000, late 2019, I got an email from a Ukrainian journalist and historian named Edward Andrushenko. Uh, Edward lives in Kiev. Thankfully, he's safe That's good. Uh, from the war. Um, but Edward uh, has spent a long, lot of his time combing through the Ukrainian KGB archive. And he runs a, a very a wonderful Telegram and YouTube channel called KGB Files, where he he does videos and posts about the various weird things he finds in the KGB archives. And one of the things he found was a a KGB report about American tourist, this guy Teddy Rowe. And Edward, as a listener of the of the SRB podcast, was interested in maybe working together if we can if this guy's still alive. Um, and initially, the project was was very, you know, small. Edward wanted to write an article as a journalist, which he he did way before <laughs> I was mm-hmm. even close to working on this. Um, but we happened to find Teddy, that he was still alive. Uh, and as a result of that, I decided to basically fly out to Billings for a weekend and interview him over three days and then take his his the interview and the re why he's important is is there's this KGB report about him that was found 50 years after he was in the Soviet Union and he went to Soviet Union in 1968 for 3 months as a tourist and he went to every Soviet republic which wow. is for for yeah for an american yeah for <laughs> <Wow>. a tourist <laughs> for a tourist 3 months is a long time it's yep. unique and to go to every Soviet republic is incredibly unique because, as you know, most of us only conceptualize the Soviet Union slash Russia, whatever you want to call it, as Moscow or the central cities. We don't think about the, the no, republics. No, they, we don't. <laughs> so it's, it's an incredibly unique experience. Um, so and from interviewing him, I it's basically the documentary is is looking at this issue of you know, here's this American guy going around the Soviet Union, 1968, which is a tumultuous year in many respects um, around the world. Yep. Um, how he understands and views Soviet society, uh, the the tropes he uses to understand Soviet society that are based a lot in the Cold War, um, and how he navigates that space and how others Soviet people react to him. Yeah. Um, and as a result, each episode is deal. There are six episodes. There's five episodes of content, uh, which is dealing with issues of, you know, what is it like to be a tourist in the Soviet Union? What's the experience like? You know, what is this KGB file? What is the surveillance of tourists? Like, why did they do this? How did it actually work? Um, a lot of the way Teddy, as a lot of Americans did during the Cold War, evaluated the Soviet Union through consumerism. 
right? What can Soviet people buy? How much can they buy? What are they consuming? Yeah. Unlike, you know, like America, we're a place of bounty. Yeah. And how, how consumerism was a, was a Cold War issue, you know, the standard of living race. <clears throat> um, the next episode deals with race. Because one of the things that Teddy gets asked constantly is, you know, what's up with you Americans? Why are you still lynching black people? <laughs> Which is a legitimate question. Yeah, that is, that is a totally <laughs> Even legitimate question. Even though it was a question. Cold War question, right? Yeah. It was, you know, we, yeah. we tell jokes about, you know, and they're Soviet jokes too about this, like, well, you lynch blacks kind of thing, right? But I, I but remember the, I remember seeing posters of Angela Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Uh-huh. In, in Russia in the 80s. So, right? yeah, it was an issue. So the so the, the issue that this episode, which is by far my most, my favorite episode um the issue on the one on race it's about like what is up with this like what is up with these questions on the one hand yeah we can say it's propaganda but is there something more going on um and how how did the soviet how did the soviet union or soviet people understand the civil rights movement in the united states uh-huh. uh so a lot of it is a lot of that episode is about like you know what is this soviet anti-racism all about and how you know, is it all propaganda? Is there something else to it? How do we how do we make sense of it? Yeah. It's various contradictions. Um, the last episode is about episode five is about um, just daily life. Like, how did Soviet people live? What was going to work like? And and the people Teddy met and his interactions with them. Actually meeting people, he met this one couple at an opera in Kiev. They invited him to you know their apartment. They took him around the city. He hung out with them. And so he had these really intimate relationships at certain points in his trip that are worth kind of, you know, looking at and, and to get a sense of like, well, what did people, you know, how did they live their daily lives? Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and the last episode will just be a kind of a wrap up discussion between me and a historian friend of mine, Leah Goldman, just kind of, you know, giving listeners like, okay, you've just listened to five hours yeah. of this guy's trip. You know, what do you, what, what are some w- things to walk away with, you know, to keep in mind? Well, we won't do any spoilers here, so you don't need to tell us. What- <laughs> well, I'm still trying to figure out those myself, but, <laughs> and I should also say that the, the documentary has a website that has a bunch of other materials. Yeah. We'll put a link to that in the yeah, show notes. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah. um, yeah. so, you know, it has, and I, I'm hoping that the whole point of it is for two things. One, I want people who are interested in the, in the period in, in Soviet Union, et cetera, America, us, Russia relations to, you know, hear a good story to hear some interesting things. Um, but also hopefully, you know, on the educational side, uh, maybe people will use this in their classroom. Yeah. And the the website will act as a supplementary to, you know, like there's a KGB report and a right. translation of it. I've yeah. just yesterday I translated a a really good article on the on SNCC that was published in the Soviet press. Huh. That must have been amazing. It, it's it's a, it's really that. it's yeah, so <laughs> it's a it's you know, just to like look at like, well, what are they what are they writing about this? Yeah. Um so yeah, so that's the that's in a nutshell. Teddy goes to the USSR. I have to ask, and again, I don't want to give any spoilers. What is the KGB file of his various uh, peregrinations like? It's short. It's about three pages, but it has Uh a big supplementary. Uh, Essentially what they were doing, and he knew it at the time. This is what's really funny. They They went into his... So we only have the report that was done by the Kievan the the Ukrainian uh-huh. police, uh-huh. right? Because we don't the archives of Russia just are, yeah. aren't open and they're never gonna open. Um it it's basically like they suspect him as being a spy. 
they suspect him as spreading his Americanness around. They, <laughs> they, uh, they broke into because I mean, and they're interested in him because he's a staff member of the yeah, you know right, Democratic obviously. Majority Leader, yeah, right? So, he's, yeah, so he's, they think he they they have an, they think they that think maybe he's, he's Palitruk. Yeah, like they think he's a window and they can learn something from him. Maybe yeah. they can cultivate him. I don't know. Uh, but it basically what they were doing is they went they went into his hotel room and and broke into his luggage. And he was keeping, he has a 400, that's the other thing I forgot to mention is that when I contacted Teddy, he has a 400 page diary Oh wow! that he kept that's of his gold. trip. That is just and, gold. And like, I don't know how many, couple hundred photographs. Yeah. And so, which I have a copy of the diary and um, they took, they took photographs of the diary. So the KGB report has trans, has translated passages from his diary. Um, wow. so it, it's actually, it's, I mean, there's nothing really explosive in it, but it does give you a sense of like, you know, why, you know, what did they think this guy is doing? Yeah. Um, and whatever he's doing, he's probably up to no good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a fascinating case because you get to see the same thing from two perspectives. One is yeah. the, the kind of the KGB perspective or the Russian perspective, looking at this strange American who they probably think is some sort of party apparatchik yeah. know, sent to take pictures of I don't know what. <laughs> and then you get to look at it from Teddy's perspective, going to this very strange place yeah. that he, yeah. you know, you, you, he probably knew a lot about it. Um, yeah. Because he has it was a master's degree. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he, he, he knew, but he gets but to the, see it firsthand. But the one thing that that's funny about this this whole thing of them monitoring him, he uh, at one, and this is a good spoiler because it's a good hook to listen to the documentary. He left a string right to see that was disturbed. He knew he, somebody was going through his stuff, yeah. and then he left them a note <laughs> <laughs> saying, "You know, if you want to, if you want to know something, just come talk to me." <laughs> yeah, right. uh, yeah. I have nothing American. I can't shut up. Yeah. So. <laughs> So it's really funny that he sent them a, you know, I know that you know that I know that you know. Yeah, of, that is very funny. Kind of thing. That's um, very funny. And when will the documentary be released? When is the launch date? The first episode comes out May 30th and then every week after that. Okay, and then, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Congratulations on it. Thank it's you. Really, it's a tremendous achievement. I Thanks. can't imagine how well, Let me just ask, how many hours? Oh, <laughs> well, you'll recall that Edward contacted me in the, at the fall in the, you know, in the end of 2019. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I happened to go to Teddy right before the pandemic hit in January, uh -huh. 2020. And then it was as a novice in, nar in narrative audio. I mean, I think this is the, what has made the experience both hell and joyous was having to learn how to do this. So yeah. when I got back from Billings and I'm like, oh, I have four hours of audio with him. What do I do, do, with, I do it? with it? Yeah. And that was the biggest challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. I, and then I, interviewing, yeah. I mean, I also interviewed, you know, 12 scholars, uh -huh. uh, historians of the period from various angles and expertise. Uh, so then it was a process of how do I deal with like what Teddy has and these, you know, quote unquote experts have, and what do I need to narrate and what is the story I'm trying to tell? So, right. you know, it was challenging, but it was, it was rewarding because, you know, when I think back to when I started to think about what do I do with this audio in the spring of 2020, um, where I was then and where I am now 
is a totally different yeah. in terms of my understanding of how you do this narrative audio stuff. Right. Well, the best way to learn something is to do it. The first Basically. time is painful, yeah. but then you know how to do it. And, you know, and what did you say the documentary you're working on now is? So the next one I'm going, I'm going to do after. I actually have a, a small project in between just because it's something I put on hold. Um, I'll talk about that first. So, you know, as I was saying a few minutes ago about um, the kind of lack of created out, creative output an interview show, uh, you know, does. Yeah. I, I've been going back and forth about mixing up the format for the SRB podcast, mm-hmm. which of course means doing more kind of more narrative stuff, but that takes a lot of time. Yeah. So I came up with this idea. uh, I think I came up with it looking for a way to not work on Teddy (laughs) 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 Um, called document where, you know, as you know, Marshall, there's all these weird archival snippets or even newspaper weird stuff from Russian history. Yeah. And I was thinking of, you know, you get some weird document and they do a podcast like narrative story about it. Cool. And the first one I um, I'm, I want to do is uh, Arch Getty, who I studied under yeah. at UCLA, for his Russian language um, exam, would give a KGB report about a piece of shit that someone sent <laughs> that someone sent Stalin in the mail in 1935. Yeah, high high crimes. <laughs> and and then how how it like was analyzed yeah. and the reports going there's three documents about like the whole incident the shit yeah. <laughs> so i want i want to do a story about it's and i already have a title it's called a gift for stalin yeah um about this incident but also like this week what is the role of feces in in <laughs> russian soviet society <laughs> yeah <laughs> like yeah. jokes about it um you know what to make of what is this guy's intent of sending it to stalin uh a, yeah. a bunch of other stuff that yeah. i just want to do Sounds something like yeah i just do want to do something just ridiculous with it um and then the next project the big one that i've been researching for two years on i think maybe three now is a, a, a multi-part series on African-Americans, communism, and the Soviet Union in the 1920s and 30s, told through the life of a guy named Lovett Fort Whiteman. Yeah, who, Lovett Fort Whiteman, yeah. Who was the only African-American we know of who was a victim of Stalin's terror. Uh-huh. Uh, and basically, that's going to explore how does this guy, who was born in Dallas, Texas in the 1890s, 1880 maybe 1880s, how does he end up in the Soviet Union? Yeah, that's a good story. Um, so, and, and what is his role in, in participation in, you know, the Communist Party in the United States, but also in the common turn in the Soviet Union, and then in Soviet, and, and his life touched on so many ma- big th- issues and people that this is what I want to explore um, throughout yeah, I don't the- think people realize how closely, <clears throat> I mean, actually... If I recall correctly, in Invisible Man, Ellison, mm-hmm. he, he he has like extensive dealings with the Communist Party. If I recall yeah, correctly, yeah. yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. And Richard course, Wright, Richard Wright, Paul Robeson, obvious and obvious. Paul case. Robeson, of course, and yeah, Langston right. Hughes, W. E. B. Du Bois. <laughs> That's right. W- w- yeah, I mean, I don't think people realize. I mean, Fort Whiteman, Fort Whiteman wrote a letter to Du Bois. Yeah, when he was in the Soviet Union, telling him out like, "You need to come check this place out." Yeah, That's um, fascinating. Langston Hughes. So, I mean, there, just to speak about one connection Whiteman has, Langston Hughes goes to the Soviet Union in 1932 with about 20 other African-Americans to do a film. 
And Whiteman is a consultant uh. on the film. The film collapses. The project collapses for a variety of reasons. But he's, you know, he's involved in that as well. Yeah. Um, so the, idea of the film survive or is it just lost? They never made it. Um, they canceled yeah, they, it in yeah. production. Yeah. For, a there was a bunch of, it's still really unclear as to what the trigger was, but it seemed there's dissatisfaction and on yeah. all sides. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the, the main line is, is that the Soviet government decided to can it because they wanted um, diplomatic recognition from the United States. Right. And to make a film about American yeah. racism yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> wasn't going to help them in those probably efforts. Probably so. not a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. especially <laughs> then. Um, that's good. All right. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Sean Guillory, uh, who is the uh, very successful academic podcast host. He hosts uh, the SRB podcast. And um, as we said, he has a series coming out. What's the date again? May 30th. May 30th. And it is called Teddy Goes to the USSR. We'll put links in the uh, blog post so you can um, so you can subscribe to that. Sean, thanks for being on the show. No, thanks for having me, Marshall. Absolutely. It's good to my talk. pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.